Thanks for listening to the Gray Ave Podcast, a show for driven young people with big goals. We meet inspiring people from around the world and learn from them, from entrepreneurship, health, travel, lifestyle, and more. We are also on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio. Rate and write us a review. You can also download each episode on www.grayjabesi.com. Enjoy the show. Hey, what's up, unicorns? My name is Gray, and this is another episode of the Gray Air Podcast. I have to start with an apology. Last week, I didn't have a chance to actually uh, put up a podcast when I was supposed to. What happened was I went on a trip. I was traveling for business, and on the day that I had to post a podcast, actually, a few things happened. First, I missed my flight from Johannesburg to Malawi. And while I was still at the airport, I lost my phone. So things kind of uh, piled up together and then I didn't have a chance to post. And for the week to follow that weekend, I was busy with uh, business and, you know, um, I had to attend a conference and put a few things together, client meetings and all these kind of things. So I didn't have a chance to this day that I got back to Cape Town. Now I'm putting up the podcast. So today our guest is definitely a unicorn by the name of Jeff White. Some of you are definitely familiar with, uh, with Jeff. He is one of the big names in the visual effects side of things and filmmaking. Uh, for some of you who are not familiar with Jeff, you might be familiar with his work. He is a visual effects supervisor at Industrial Light and Magic, ILM. He has worked on such films as uh, Kong Skull Island, which just got out recently. And he worked on Avengers. Uh, some of you might be familiar with the Hawk in Avengers. That's his work. He, uh, he has worked on Star Wars, Warcraft. Um, so I can go on and on. But like, I uh, just want to point out that this is not only for the visual effects or film people. Uh, it's really the, the lessons from this episode are universal just like any other episode So I recommend that you pay attention to it and uh, We started with talking about his story and we talked about uh, the experience with work, uh, working on Kong Skull Island and We talked about how he works with directors how actors like Mark Luflo who um, Mark Luflo is an actor who worked um, who played the Hawk in the Avengers, how they work with visual effects because they have to dress up and um, work with um, computer graphics to make things work. So we talked about that and we talked about how he balances life and work, uh, you know, having this kind of uh, position where he has to deal with uh, a lot of deadlines and all these kind of things. How does he balance that with his personal life? And we talked about how uh, they spot talent at places like ILM and what you can do to get there. So I hope you enjoy it. And one more thing, just remember to leave me a review and uh, leave me a five star on iTunes and leave a comment. I'll really appreciate it. And if you're listening on SoundCloud, just remember to click on that repost button. And thanks for listening. So I'll, you're still working today. I, I, I was expecting you to be on the beach relaxing after um, it's finished. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we definitely did some of that. Uh, the great thing about uh, Skull Island is that the visual effects work actually finished just before the holiday. 
so um, I was able to take a nice break um, over the holidays without, you know, having homework over the vacation, uh, which was really nice. It's a it's a great way to finish up. Right. So this podcast is not only about visual effects, it's just about, uh, it's quite generic in terms of we just l try to interview people that are great at what they do and try to learn from them. So not the whole audience know a lot about visual effects, uh, yeah. but they're obviously familiar with movies uh, and they watch a lot of films. Would you just explain exactly uh, your job and, and what, what you deal with and what kind of problems do you solve and what you have worked on before? Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, main job, uh, as I explained, I have um, six-year-old twins, and so they're always like, "What are you doing at work all day?" <laughs> and you know, the this summing it up, uh, especially for a movie like Kong, is just putting you know really great creatures into these movies that don't exist there. Um, and there are a lot of um, people involved in that process. Uh, and so the, the great thing about the job is that it evolves over the course of a film's life cycle. So at the beginning, you're involved in bidding and potentially previs. And then when they shoot the film, um, we go on location and um, help assist you know, with how the film is actually shot. Um, t telling them where to look and uh, you know where Kong would be standing, um, thinking about um, the things that we can do when we shoot the movie that will help with the integration work later, like trying to avoid putting characters behind frizzy hair and things like that, and then um, uh, and, and running around with you know green screens when uh, all of a sudden we need the camera pointed the complete opposite direction that we were expecting, uh, and then. Once we're into post-production, um, we work with editorial to sort of um, figure out the sequences and particularly the animation beats, and then work with a very big team uh, here at ILM and really around the world to execute the visual effects work. And um, you know, that's everything from uh, in, uh, ingesting the uh, source footage and then sort of um, uh, working with it as it moves down the pipeline into, into the final shots. Great. That's a very detailed explanation. I like. It. <laughs> Hopefully that works. I like when you say that we we put creatures that doesn't exist in the movies. I think that's a very um, very little description that just makes sense. Um, so you have worked on a couple of films. Could you just mention a few that maybe most people are familiar with? And you work for ILM, which is obviously like the largest company that. Uh, does this work, which we could say started the whole industry about visual effects, right? Yeah, and really started about the time I was born. Um, and one of the fun things about being here is just the the history and the knowledge. You know, people have been working in this industry since its inception, and still here. Um, there, there's just so so many great resources to go to. You know, if you ever have a question here, uh, it's a fantastic place to work because um, somebody's got the answer, and um, I started off, my first film uh, working at ILM was Van Helsing, and then since then um, I've been able to work on uh, most of the Transformers films, at least one, two, and three, um, and The Avengers, uh, Warcraft, and then this year was uh, Kong Skull Island. Great. Um, now let's just uh, talk a little bit about Kong before we go uh, into... Sure. The, yeah. Um, when did, was it decided that you will be 
supervising Kong? Well, um, it, it was I, I had done uh, Warcraft, uh, which with uh, Duncan Jones was the director, and it was a project I really enjoyed. Um, we had a great time on that one, uh, especially making all of the orcs. And that project was for Legendary Pictures, and um, so shortly after finishing that one, uh, we had started ramping up on Kong Skull Island. Um, and uh, Steven Rosenbaum was working on the legendary side uh, as a visual effects supervisor on the project. And he and I sort of started collaborating kind of in the early days. And really, it was just a matter of not, not just bidding the show, but doing artwork and just trying to get as involved as we could because we could see already that it was going to be a great, you know, sort of creature movie, great monster film uh, to be involved with. Uh, and so. Um, we we just continued to work at trying to land that, and then eventually ILM was the work, and uh, we did about 750 um, shots here at ILM, and then there were probably another 300 shots that were done with an in-house team uh, down in LA. Cool. So, and your first reaction was obviously excited when you heard about it, or no, <laughs> scared. Yeah, oh, yeah, scared. I Always. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, the great thing, I've been very lucky um, in my career. I mean, the, with the Avengers, you know, getting a chance to, to, to try and create Hulk was one of those, you know, once in a lifetime opportunities. And um, such a fun experience, but also very daunting. I mean, that that character has a huge and very passionate fan base, and you don't want to let them down. Um, you know, you certainly want to meet their expectations and make this a- amazing character. And I would say that every bit that pressure was on Kong as well. Um, he's he's such a big part of movie history. You know, everyone knows who this character is, um, and he's been done really well. I mean, uh, Weta did a fantastic job with Kong in 2005, and so the bar was already very high for you know how good the the creature needed to look. Uh, so yeah, it was a, a lot of trepidation. But one of the great things about being at ILM is you just have amazingly talented people that you work with that can help you figure out all the really hard problems. <laughs> right. So then, uh, so when you heard it that you, you're going to head on it, like as a supervisor, like what, what is the first thing that you worry about or you start jumping around in to sort out? And also, what exactly does the VVFX supervisor do? Just for the folks that are not really familiar with the industry still. Sure. I mean, a lot of what we started off doing, um, so you do a couple of things immediately. Like one is you start talking about um, how they're going to shoot the film. And there's a lot of, you know, sort of practical questions that come up with, especially with a creature this large. Like, how do you go out and actually shoot the background plates and um, help everybody understand where the character is in the scene, where they should be looking to make sure that the eye lines are right? Because, I mean, you can tell right away uh, if people don't have the right eye line, um, you know, where they're supposed to be talking to Kong and they're looking at his foot or something along those lines. So, uh, uh, so that that was sort of one practical consideration, and we had a couple of, you know, the, and in many ways it was kind of low tech in our approach, where because we were in pretty exotic locations in Hawaii and um, particularly in Vietnam, we were there for about six weeks. You couldn't bring a lot of complex visualization and motion capture and all that. So 
uh, we have a program that we've written here at ILM that just runs on an iPad and it allows you to select the camera and the lens and load in a model of Kong and then get a pretty accurate representation of what it would look like if he was there. And it just uses the gyroscope on the iPad so that he kind of sticks in place. And even though it's it's fairly simple, it's incredibly useful in those locations because when you're out in these natural environments, it's very difficult to tell how tall or how far away things are. Uh, so we could load that in there and then uh, show it to the camera operators, um, and they so that they had a, a rough idea. It's like, okay, if you're tilting, you know, uh, here's here's um, you know Toby Kebble standing in this in the water. Kong's going to walk in right to left. Uh, as you pan with him, here's you know kind of how high you have to tilt. Now, of course, Kong is extremely tall in this film, and but one of the things Jordan decided right away was that this was going to be an anamorphic film, which means that um, you have a very like narrow top and bottom to your to your image, and you have no extra outside of that. Uh, and of course, that that provides a, a quite a challenge for us because um, you know if the camera operator tilts up. And then we put Kong in there and realize later, well, they, they only tilted up to his shoulder. You, we need to get up to his face. Um, you know, a lot of times we just end up extending the backgrounds that are there. The nice thing is, at, when you're standing on the ground, if you're tilting up to Kong, you're generally over the sky. So it's pretty easy to, to add on to the camera moves if we needed to. Great. Uh, sounds way more complicated. Uh, <laughs> and then... Um, so once the it's decided that this is how you're gonna shoot it, do you start worrying about uh, like, well, do you have to? Are you the one who have to decide who will be on set with the director, or you go there by yourself? Like, yeah, in in this case, um, Steven Rosenbaum was generally on set with uh, Jordan. Uh, and what we call first unit. And then uh, when I went over there, I was doing a lot of the um, second unit work, um, which tended to be more of the action type scenes. Um, we did a lot of work in the boneyard sequence, you know, with the people getting pulled on wires and explosions and um, and just really collaborated a lot back and forth uh, with Steven. Um, and then the other nice thing is that a lot of times they'll send the visual effects supervisor up with the helicopter crew to go shoot aerial plates and you know that is it is one of those things where um it's it's just this kind of amazing little bit of you know side job that's part of doing this work and you get just these spectacular helicopter rides because it's not it's not the tourist ride where you take off and you sort of fly high above the ground and then you land um, when we were in Vietnam, we were flying, I mean, you can see the shots in the film flying right down between all the cars o over there, um, over the water. And it was, it was, you know, I felt like I should be paying them for how beautiful that flight was. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, you work with just, you know, the best pilots and I worked with David Knoll, who's the aerial, uh, DP on the film and, you know, they just have so much experience, and you kind of say as you fly around, you're like, "Oh, you know, maybe there's a good shot over there," and and they know how to just capture uh, amazing backgrounds. You sound very excited now. I wonder if you had the same excitement while the project was going on. 
<laughs> well, I, t- I told my wife, I was like, I don't think I'm going to be, you know, flying in a helicopter when we go to Vietnam. And then day one, <laughs> it was, uh, hey, we need you to go up. And uh, especially because they, they actually had to ship the helicopter in in pieces and then assemble it. So you really have to trust that somebody tightened those bolts down pretty well. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. Surely. But, um, you know, to, to, see, to see Vietnam from the air like that is uh, really a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Right. So... How, when does it start to actually get maybe a little stressful or uncomfortable with timing? Because these movies obviously have to come to come out at a certain time. And obviously yeah. visual effects, it's something that you know that you will do and uh, get it done. But like you don't really know how to do it. Yeah. Because you, you, you have never done the same thing over and over again. It's like the challenge is always new. How yeah. do you make sure that's snipping and who decides the timing? Well, um, that is also a, a big team effort. I mean, you have the combination of um, the production team um, that really keeps us on track. They schedule everything. Um, they communicate with the artists. You know, things will invariably take longer than than you expect. And you have to be able to accommodate and adjust for that, um, because at the at the end of the line, there's always kind of a hard deadline when all the work needs to be finished. And what you don't want to do is shortchange any of the shots. You know, where you end up with like you know a handful of spectacular shots, but then all the rest of them never got any resources applied to them to make them look great. So it, it really is a balancing act and a chess game, trying to figure out where do you get the resources uh, into next. Um, and and I think with this one, you know, the, the animation component of it, you know, we've been doing for a long time, and um, there's a lot of keyframe animation on this uh, with the um, animation supervisor, Scott Benza. That is is a pretty straightforward process. We know what we're doing, but it's the all the steps that come after animation finishes, and in particular in this film, the amount of time that Kong um, and the skull crawler spend in the water was a real concern. Because even once animation finishes, there can be months of work to get all of the rest of the components uh, in place. So you really absolutely reply, uh, rely on your team that's doing all the scheduling and all the production management to, to space the work out uh, to make sure that we have the, the right resources to get it done. Um, because as, as you alluded to, as, you, as the clock starts to tick and you have four weeks left to finish, you're looking at all the shots left to go and uh, it's like, okay, how are we... How are we going get, to get those done? Um, the funny thing about visual effects is invariably it's, it's, a, it's a curve like this. You know, you start off slow, you're finding the look, um, you're figuring out how to get the shots to the level that they need to be. And so getting, getting uh, sequences finished is very slow at the beginning, but towards the end, everybody sort of knows, hey, there's a, there's a timeline on this, we got to get this done. And I think in a way it kind of helps focus decision making. And... Um, and you know, it's it, it it it's always a team effort to to get there. Um, so, as a visual effects supervisor, like uh, on a film that is highly reliant reliant on visual effects, how close are you to to the director? How often do you work yeah. with them? And also, how do you make sure? Like, what kind of culture do you like your team to get involved in? Like, what kind of environment do you create for your team to make sure that everybody's happy and uh, it ends up as a fun project. I, I mean, you, you, I, 
in reading your profile, I know you do some of this work as well, and you know that um, it can be very stressful. Um, and so I think it's it's important to um, try and keep keep everything as positive and fun as possible. I mean, everybody's in this industry because they love doing this work, and everybody's incredibly passionate about delivering the best work that they possibly can. Um, so that's the easy part. You know, no, no, you don't have to ask anybody to, to keep improving it. Um, that's, everybody wants to. Uh, invariably, the, the challenges are difficult and the, the hours can get long. Um, and so I think it is very important to make sure that you're looking out for your crew, that you're, um, you know, that you keep in morale high and you, and you just keep keep it fun because if you let the stress of the situation sort of propagate into um, how you're communicating with everyone, um, it, it gets not fun very fast. Um, so I, you know, I've worked with many supervisors um, like uh, Scott Farrar. He was really my, my mentor on the Transformers films and um, just watched his ability to take, you know, even under very stressful situations, just keep it fun, uh, keep it you know interesting, uh, and and really keep keep the ball moving down the road because they always get done. Um, it's just it can be a little challenging on the way. Uh, on on every film it, it varies, but on this one in particular, I got to work very directly with the director who is Jordan Vote Roberts, and I think that's so important. I mean, you know, visual effects like any department in filmmaking is is a huge part of the image that ends up on the screen and as you want to make sure that you're working with them to kind of realize what it is that they had in mind and with jordan it was fantastic because you know he was pulling all kinds of different references and sources for this film clearly apocalypse now was a big inspiration uh but i you know he would send me anime reference and uh video game reference and i mean what i i loved that he didn't limit his sources at all and you know so i think there's a lot of great moments in the film that that come from all those different pieces that he was able to put together great um so when you started the project from the beginning mm -hmm. let's say did you end up with the same amount of people that you finished with in terms of your team? no uh, you it, it always ends up being you know a, a, to a degree a ramp up because in the beginning um, you're you don't get it's you know you don't finish shooting the movie and then they just hand you the whole thing as one one big package it tends to come in like okay one week we'll get a hundred shots and maybe two weeks later we'll get two hundred shots and a lot of times um, you know that's a very difficult process for for the director and for editorial because they have to edit these sequences together and really make some pretty strong commitments about starting the visual effects work for those sequences so it's it's a big project on their side to be able to actually hand that work over um, and because it comes in pieces like that you tend to start off a little smaller while you're trying to find the look of the creatures and um, you know make sure that you you're on really understand the director's aesthetic and then as you get into full shot production the crew sizes ramp up and you know the work flows from each department like layout into animation and then as the animation starts to finish then you bring on a lot of the people that do all the effects simulation uh so you know by the end you, you're usually quite large uh in terms of the number of people working uh to get the the um the movie out the door right so you are the the channel or be, between the artist and the director 
mm-hmm. and I don't know on a I've never worked on a films on on such a big label, but like on a small level, you you have some shots or some requests that the director wants, and then mm-hmm. um, the supervisor would say this is not going to happen, it's not possible. Uh, I don't know if you have the same kind of scenarios on the on that scale and how do you deliver those news to the director that is a great question um you know sometimes there there are constraints and their limitations but a, a big part of the job is to figure out um okay i hear what you're asking for and what you're looking for i know that going this one like you know we're we're Rendering and compositing this creature going all the way back to animation is going to set us back months. But maybe there's a way we can figure out um, to how to accommodate what it is you're looking for. And, uh, you know, a good, good example, I mean, it's it's amazing, you know, the, the with the talent level of the compositors that we have here, how many of those problems they can solve. Um, you know, we had shots where, oh, you know, way down the line, we sort of realized, oh, we wish, we wish, you know, this, the middle of the scene was a little slower. Um, and the compositor did it all, you know, with retimes and rescales and, you know, patching pieces of, of different shots together, you know, to make it work. Um, so I think for the most part, you know, with, with every director, it's it's always a dialogue. And, you know, I, I want them to say, this is what I really want for the film. And then, you know, we puzzle and we think about, like, okay, how are we going to accommodate that? And, and what can we do with the time and, and resources uh, that we have? Great. Now, if we, when we go into the technicalities of, the, of Kong, for example. Mm-hmm. I looked at the fur work was really great, but I, I was, I'm still curious on how you deal with the blood because it's really hard to get blood to look on a black surface, uh, especially yeah. fur on it. So I don't know how odd you yeah. went on that. <laughs> well, that the the blood was kind of tied into a system that we built for the for just general fur wetness, um, and you know. We, even just looking at the previs that we had for the film, and um, originally um, the final battle wasn't necessarily going to be in the water, and then once that transitioned to Vietnam, um, and we knew we were going to be fighting uh, in that marsh, um, we we knew we also need a very sophisticated system to be able to make Kong wet anywhere, you know, like to get water on his fur. um, wherever wherever needed. And so to that end, we essentially the, the the groomers who were working on Kong, and there was actually two people working. Pro- I would say for for at least a year uh, on his hair, and it's and it wasn't just getting kind of the base look done, which took a very long time, but it was all the different permutations of of Kong's hair that we needed. So he's you know starts at the beginning of the film as you know, normal Kong, then he gets his arm sliced by the helicopter blades. Uh, then he has a, a fight with the squid where he gets all wet. Um, there's, uh, there, there was all these different versions that were required. Um, and so to, we, what we had was a complete fur groom of normal Kong and then complete fur groom uh, where he was like fully saturated 
wet. And the system could take areas that you could paint by hand and it would change the um, shading parameters of the hair. It would change the um, styling. So where the, the hair was, was generally pretty tufted and, and matted on Kong, um, it would, it would uh, loosen it and separate it. Um, in particular, it could also um, measure, after we finished the effects sim in the water, how long the hair had been underwater. And the longer it was submerged, uh, the more the hair uh, changed in its saturation value. And so that meant that like hair that generally stayed to clumped together would then loosen up and kind of flow, you know, underwater. And that was particularly useful for those shots, you know, you see at the end of the film where Kong's hand comes in and, and scoops up. Um, Brie Larson's character. So the, we, we built this whole system so that, you know, at any point we could sort of make patches of, of Kong uh, having been in the water. And um, that's kind of the basis of what we use for the blood. It was essentially the wet fur system, but then uh, uh, John Walker, who's the shading to on Kong, could um, uh, change the hair color, change the specularity so that even though everything around it was kind of dry and matted, the, the bloody hair was wetter and shinier. Um, and then we also had to, you know, where he was cut, actually go in and, and remove the, the hair from the groom that was there in order to expose those cuts. But it took us a very long time uh, to, to do each of those wounds. And if one thing I'm really proud of is that actually if you track Kong through the film, the damage is, is consistent with its continuity. So he gets the, the cut there on the arm, and then you know he, he goes into the lake with all the fire, and then there's a he has a complete burned version of him, and then in the in the battle that he has at the end with the skull crawler, um, he takes on damage that um, is consistent uh, through the end of the sequence. So I guess uh, having like um, a lot of like programmers and TDs on your team helps a lot, eh? I think it would be a different story it if we didn't have those. It does, although I, you'd be amazed at um, that it's not, it doesn't end up being a lot of programmers. Like there's there's a good sized team working on it, but really it's the, the two hair groomers, um, there's a look development TD, and there was one person, you know, that's really focused in R&D on our hair pipeline and hair development tools. Um, and then we have a separate team that handles kind of all the simulation of the hair and the movement of it <clears throat> in, in reaction to Kong's movement. Um, but uh, it's amazing that the size of the teams, because they're not, not nearly as big as you'd think it would take to, to, to do a character like that. All right. Um, so for, for your artist, uh, if I had to meet one of your artists, what is the very common thing that anybody would say about you, every one of them? <laughs> I don't know. That's a very good question. Uh, uh, that's uh, I'm not sure. That's a great question. I mean, uh, I again, you know, that I have the most respect um, for the artists that I get a chance to work with. Like, I mean, they they they're the ones that really pull it off. You know, we we kind of all go into dailies. We talk about the work, and you make suggestions on what you think might improve it, but. At, when you work at a place like ILM and some of the other big studios, you 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 give some guidance, but the artists really know what to do. And I get surprised all the time. You know, people just uh, come up with things that I hadn't even thought of um, that look amazing. And that that is one of the things that I enjoy most about this job is that you you work with this huge teams of creative people, 
and they they go you know so far above and beyond uh, with their shot work uh, because everybody really cares about how it looks. And I have to say, it is it is easy to get people excited about working on two giant creatures fighting in the water. <laughs> <laughs> totally exciting for big effects guys. Yeah. yeah. So what was the very last day like? Like when you wrapped everything off? Oh jeez, I don't know. These shows, they I mean, you, usually they end with like a 4 a.m. Okay, we sent the movie off and now we're all going home and trying to sleep. Uh, they, it, no matter what, uh, on every show, um, the, you know, when you're down to that last day, it's it's a late night. And, uh, and, and again, that's where you, you're there with the team that you're working with and they're just all, you know, incredibly dedicated people. Um, but it's, it's a great, it's a great feeling, especially on a project like this where, you know, the work is quite difficult, but, um, but it's really fun to do. And I think, you know, when the artists are really proud of the work that they've done, um, it's a great feeling because you know shortly after that we we put all the shots together and we have sort of a show celebration where we get everybody together and you watch all the visual effects work because you know the work is done uh, here and and in particular in Skull Island it was done in San Francisco Vancouver and Singapore and uh, along with uh, two other companies we worked with in Montreal and um, you know a lot of times you're just working on your sequence and you don't necessarily see all the other work going on so it's a great opportunity for everybody to kind of right. take in like everything that's been done uh, and see it all together cool so one thing that I'm, I'm, I've noticed in the visual effects is, is like uh, naming a project when it's coming in sounds really exciting like oh we're gonna work on this and yep. you work through the whole process it's, it can be incredibly hard but like you work with the end goal in mind it's like the very final thing that's going to happen is exactly what you're working for. It's just like, okay, I want to work this out so that it looks really cool. And you, you eventually get there. So if the project is very long, like this kind of projects where it takes months or years to actually finish, mm -hmm. I think it's important to keep that motivation for the artists to keep on. You know, I mean, I, I know some guys work for, for on the same shot for weeks or days or something like that. Yeah. So how do you make sure that the motivation for those kind of uh, situations is there so that nobody lose track or lose focus or actually get bored of the project? Yeah, I'll give you a better example, which is, I, you know, we've had artists work on uh, shots for they get omitted from the film. And, and it's, it's often, you know, kind of the right decision for the film. But you can imagine, like, that is months of work that they've done, sweating the details, yeah. and then it, it's on the cutting room floor. Um, but, but you know, ultimately, you always have to make the decision about what's what's right for the movie. And, and you know, I think it's, it's always people that work in this industry just love doing this work. You know, I think um, it's, it's never very hard to motivate anyone. And I, and I do think it's just important to kind of keep it fun and to keep it a collaboration, um, you know, between everyone, because it, it does get stressful. You know, there's a lot of, as every week, um, you know, you can't sort of wait till the end to finish all the shots every week. You have to target shots and, um, it's a lot of pressure to, to get all the pieces in place um, that, um, that need to happen. Uh, so, I, I mean, I think 
it it is it is definitely like you do what you can to to keep morale high but a lot of times it's also the fact that you know people love doing this work so much that it's pretty easy to to keep them motivated right um i remember i think in 2012 i was watching the behind the scenes of uh, avengers and i remember mm-hmm. looking at you uh, watching your interview with your t-shirt keep calm and render on it's it's, <laughs> yeah. it's also real right now that we're talking i'm like you know uh, looking up to that and um how did you get started and ended up at uh, eventually it's it was kind of a winding path i mean it's always, it's always amazing to to actually be here um i grew up in a very small town in upstate new york and but you know always lo- loved visual effects films and i mean that certainly star wars and jurassic park but i would watch anything with cg work in it um like you know i, wa- I love lawnmower man cuz to me it was like wow th- there's some spectacular sequences that show the potential you know of what you can do with computer graphics um and so i was i was really wanted to work in in that but it's you know from from that small town it's like how do you ever hope to to get into the industry um so my path was essentially to major in i studied film um at Ithaca college but for my junior and senior projects i, I worked with a friend of mine uh and we just did computer animation but there wasn't a formal program there at the time so it was all on borrowed time um and you know we had we had our our home rolled uh render network set up um in the business school because they had the best computers but if we if we overslept and left our renders going it, the machines would just be complete you know completely sluggish and we're talking about netscape like 2.0 or something wow. at the time yeah so uh so you know it was a lot of sort of beg borrow and steal to to get the that first um project done uh, but it was a great experience and it helped me sort of build a portfolio to uh get into um savannah and i went to savannah college of art and design for graduate work um and and you know i at, in between there i had applied to um Sheridan college which at the time in was it's in canada and you know great reputation and i and i didn't get in and it was kind of one of those moments of like oh man this isn't this isn't going anywhere but i've found again and again you know that a lot of times that if if something doesn't work out there's usually a pretty good reason and you know you just you just kind of keep going with it and just take a different avenue because there are so many ways into this industry um and and um so i ended up going to savannah and i was there for about a year um and when i was there uh i met a recruiter from a company in portland called wilvin studios and at that time they were primarily a stop motion um stop motion house but they were also doing cg television commercials and most famously i think the m&m's spots um and it had grown up from being kind of a a light wave uh house which is what i learned first into transitioning into maya um and since i knew both coming out of graduate school that's how i got an internship there um and uh and so i worked in commercials for about 2 years or so and um 
the interesting thing is when I was at Savannah, um, they had brought in several people from the industry um, from a couple of different companies and they had the graduate students meet with them and sort of almost randomly like split us into groups. And I uh, got put in the group that met with Hale Kobayashi, who was from ILM. And it was actually through him that I ended up getting my interview several years later. Um, uh, for ILM, and when it was it was at SIGGRAPH uh, in San Antonio, Texas, and you know it was very intimidating because there's a a whole table full of very accomplished and talented people, um, and I, you know coming out of commercials, it, it, commercials are were such a great place um, to start my career, and I, I really liked it because you um, the turnover time was so fast. You know you'd be on a new project every six weeks, and each one would have a different challenge. And also, you had a lot more opportunity to kind of touch every part of the pipeline. So you could do rigging and lighting, you know, and compositing and pipeline work. Like um, it was, uh, it was a really fun uh, environment into in work. And and at that time, it was also great because at at the same time there was all the stop motion production going on. Um, and uh, shortly after I left, the company became Leica, uh, and they you know they're very famous for making Coraline. Uh, and Kubo um, this year, and just doing an incredible work with stop motion. Um, so worked worked there for about two years, and then uh, interviewed and um, and got a call from ILM, and they said, you know, what were you were you looking at doing like character TD work? You know, which is um, in this industry, it's like rigging the characters for animation and setting up simulations of clothing and hair and things like that. Or did I want to do lighting work? And I, and I thought, well, probably you know, lighting and 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 that. And um, so, well, we're only hiring character TDs right now. And I said, that sounds good. <laughs> but you know, uh, it was. I actually, I thought it was a. a gr it's such a great place to to start in a feature film pipeline because. The character TDs are right in the middle. Um, they work with the modelers to, you know, rig the characters. Um, they set up all the simulation. They work very closely with the animators. You do all here. You do all the muscle and skin simulations, so you learn a lot about anatomy. Uh, and you work with the sculptors that are doing all of the um, corrective work at the end, just kind of really fine tuning what the anatomy looks like. Uh, so I actually think it was a a great place to start um, and I learned a tremendous amount about doing uh, creatures and I found that has been very beneficial um, for the types of movies that I've been able to work on. Right. It's been a long, a long journey, eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it feels like it when I recount it. <laughs> yeah. um, but it, you know, along the way it's definitely all about like a lot of people lending a helping hand for sure um, and you know, you really uh, uh, you're really sort of dependent on those breaks, um, but uh, you know, so much of it is just. Uh, when I started at Will Vinton, I met a friend there uh, who I'm still very good friends with today. That he was working on a commercial, and you know, I didn't necessarily have anything laid out for me to do. And he said, "Oh, hey, I'm I'm gonna go do this project. Uh, why don't you come help me?" And um, you know, that's that's kind of how I I got started. So. Uh, pe people are very, very supportive in the industry, and um, I think very um, <clears throat> in encouraging. You know, to 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 try and um, help people um, succeed. So it's uh, it's it's there's a lot of great people to work with here. That's actually true. Like 
what I've noticed in, um, in the recent years is like people that are on higher ranks are a little bit more approachable in a lot of ways and like they're more likely keen to help you when you, you actually ask for help from them or something like that. I think, um, you know, for a long time they didn't seem approachable, but it was just because there weren't avenues for communication. You know, it's um, the, uh, you know, just the fact that we have this podcast or recently did that Reddit AMA, like it, it, there's so many more avenues now for people to talk to people in the industry and find out what it's like. I mean, it used to be you go to SIGGRAPH and maybe you talk to somebody at a booth and that's about all the exposure you can get. But uh, now I think it's much more open and there's there's a lot more opportunity for people to talk to people that are working in the industry and to, to get support from them, you know, to, to help them along their careers. Right. So if you look back, though, what are the things that you would or you would have done differently if you had to do them again over, over your career? And um, before ILM or you growing up, of course, you knew you wanted to do visual effects, but what were you aiming to 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 achieve for example like for what company to work for or is, is it a project or was it some kind of a uh, what company were you aiming for um the the honestly i had no idea i mean i knew ilm of course especially when when i was growing up there were very few companies in the industry um compared to what there is now where there's so many different companies doing such high levels of work so um so you know ilm was always like a place i would love to work and and a lot of it was because that's that's one of the few that i actually knew about um but uh I, you know it was one of those things where it's kind of like each each you know, step led to the next. And usually once you can get your foot in the door or find that first job, um, then, then the connections, you know, start to happen. And, um, you know, I mean, I always wanted to work at ILM. I wasn't sure obviously what I wanted to, to do here. And what's great about this industry is you can really have kind of an organic career where you start off as a character TD and I love doing that work. Then I moved to what we call a digital production supervisor. Um, which was kind of more on the technical back end um, of our shows, like making sure that you've got the right proc allocation and you know you're managing disk space and just kind of managing technology for the shows. And then and then a lot of it also is about finding that great mentor. And for me, you know, that really was um, working with Scott Farrar on the Transformers films, um, where I had I'd worked as his creature supervisor on Lion Witch in the Wardrobe. For the, for the little piece that we did of it and talk, talk, talking with him after I was like Scott what do you what do you bid next and he's like oh so, some Transformers you know thing. and you know for me having grown up with the cartoon I was like oh Scott you've got to get me on that project uh, and and that was the original you know Transformers film um, and w with each of those that I worked on uh, you know uh, working for Scott, um, I just had another level of opportunity in terms of supervision and you know um, uh, going out on set and learning all the skills that it takes because it's very different than the skills that it takes to kind of do the the work. Um, the onset work is um, is a completely different world when you're kind of used to just sitting and working at the computer all day. Uh, but but it was really that that sort of mentorship relationship that I think got me off the ground and um, and I think that's uh, that's an important part for anybody in the industry to to, to kind of look for those people. Right, 
and uh, jumping off to Avengers, for example. Uh, how, did, how did that happen? And uh, I'm sure you, you have been reading comics over the years and then to realize that you'd be working on that, how did you uh, receive the news and how do you feel now looking back? Uh, th that was one of those, that was one, that was the first project, um, I mean, we, where th there was a supervisor that I was working with on the, on the Marvel side of the project, his name is Yannick Sers, and really fantastic supervisor. Um, and it was my first, uh, opportunity to be kind of the ILM, the, uh, supervisor for a show. And, um, you know, it was just one of those projects that, uh, had, all these amazing things to do in visual effects. There was like big destruction stuff that was really fun. There was great characters. Um, I was able to, you know, we had to create a, a couple new suits for Iron Man and and uh, different ways that he would put them on and take them off. Um, and and then of course, like what really drew me to it was it was a chance to 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 make Hulk. Um, I can't. I'm trying to remember when we actually found like yes, you're you're going to do it. I mean, I was just incredibly excited. It was such a blur of like trying to to land the project, um, but uh, it was it was one of those films that um, was just so fun to work on. And again, you know, there was a team of people here that were just as excited about working on Hulk as I was, and and I think you know. Joss Whedon brought a lot of really fun ideas to it. Like he had us incorporate um, more of Mark, the actor Mark Ruffalo, into the design of Hulk, and that I think that helped us a lot in terms of our facial capture, making sure that the the performance is translated as accurately as possible. Um, and you know, he we we did all kinds of things like, you know. It, we put chest hair on him, uh, you know, some back hair, lots of neck hair, ear hair. I mean, just stuff that you hadn't really seen on Hulk before. Um, all with the goal of like, okay, we want people to believe this This guy is just standing right next to the rest of the Avengers and he's in the scene and you don't even think about it. And um, and that, that, was, that was kind of our goal for the project and uh, a really fun one. And then, you know, I mean, Joss just came up with these amazing moments for Hulk, which I think really endeared the audience to that character. Uh, the I think one of the first uh, previs that we were sent for the film is the one where he t he picks up Loki and he slams him, you know, back and forth on the ground. And, um, you know, you every time I would... Ah, so good. Every time I would see the film in the theater with people that didn't know what was coming, you know, it's just a huge laugh. And it's just... It's a it's a perfect moment because you have all this action and then you get this great comedy beat yeah, sure. uh, that happens and you know it just people people love it so um, now the Avengers was definitely like a, a a dream project for sure. Great. So let's now talk about um, a lot of artists listen to this podcast as well. Obviously, guys mm -hmm. the effect, but there is the necessity of skills of course as to be a visual effects artist you have to be competent and don't stop learning but yep. what is the what are the other necessary skills that are important to becoming a, a supervisor what's the difference there um i would say i mean certainly technical skills as you mentioned are very important um artistic skills and and i you know and I, I say that sort of jokingly because, like, I am not 
a what I would call a traditional artist. Like I sort of came at it from the film route, uh, and you know I can you know if you n- not a good drawer at all. <laughs> uh, uh, so, you know, I tend to lean on photography and, and film much more than, uh, and, you know, luckily at ILM, I don't need to be because there's people that can, you know, uh, just create incredible artwork. So, you know, a lot, a lot of the job of being a supervisor is, is, is knowing the technical aspects of it, knowing the art, artistic aspects and what makes a good shot and, you know, film and lighting and all those things and camera. But honestly, the thing that people never talk about as much is just the interpersonal skills. Um, and, and I would say that's true for people just trying to get a job in the industry. I mean, it's, it's a little cliche, but every interview is like, okay, do they have the artistic skills? Yes. Would I want to work with that person day in and day out? That's a lot of times can be the difference in in a in a hire between two different people, and a lot of times, you know, even if somebody doesn't seem like they have as strong a reel, if you see the enthusiasm, and you see the the you know this is somebody that I, this is somebody who's going to be solving problems day in and day out, um, that's going to make the decision on uh, who you, who you decide to. To hire, um, and I would say as you as you work on as you become a visual effects supervisor, it is it becomes much more just about communication skills, because you spend the all time on set, you know, talking to all the different department heads, um, talking, you know, a lot of it's please can we get uh, this you know eighty foot blue screen over here, uh, you know, you're asking a lot of favors um, to, to get the work shot correctly. Um, you're working with the director. Um, you're working with the producers to to also keep. You know, budget is a big part of visual effects now, and um, you know you can't just do whatever you want. You really have to go into it with the plan. Um, and then and then when you're in post production, you're you have dailies, and you know you're talking to hundreds of artists around the world. Um, and so really, again, being able to be clear, I think being able to to communicate well. And and certainly be respectful. Those are all things that I I see in all the great supervisors in the industry. Right. So if you're, um, I, I think the right question to ask is, at what level? How good should you be just to like get in the door of uh, a company like ILM, for example? Uh, it's always it's hard to say. You know, what what's good good enough? I mean, I think. You you want to put as str- strong a reel as possible together when you're applying, but also don't don't think that um, you know ILM is like completely out of reach and um, because there there are opportunities all the time um, and and also with regards to software you don't have to be a master of every piece of software like you'll learn a lot of that after you get hired here and. Um, uh, I think it, it is really about looking at the artistry when when we're interviewing people, and and certainly you know for certain disciplines the the technical ability because even you know there's no real like um you know just matte painting and that's that's only an artistic exercise anymore it, it's really an an artistic one it's a very technical one because you're working in 3D you're doing a lot of projections um, you know we, our our team here that does the environments. Um, they're they're doing incredible work uh, in Clarice, building all the vegetation, building the mountains, um, and yet at the same time can do like great looking matte paintings and composites with photography and all that. 
Um, so I think, you know, the, 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 the old adages about demo reels absolutely still applies. Better to be short and amazing than have it be long and so-so. And, and a lot of it, I think, is um, just in trying to keep focus. Because I know that's something I've it's been terrible at is, like, you start to get interested and you start building this one thing and then, oh, Oh, maybe I'll go build this other thing instead. You know, that looks. I started on the spaceship, but now I'm going to go build this character. And then, oh, maybe I'll make this. You know, I'll do this big physical simulation. And you end with, um, you end up with any a lot of things that aren't necessarily feel complete. It's much much better to keep it short, keep it very focused, and keep it completable for you. You know, as a person, uh, with the goal that you have, uh, and then. And then, you know, just really go after that. And and there's a lot of ways into ILM. I mean, people, um, you know, coming out of school have been hired. Um, you can work in commercials. You can work in games. Um, you can work in studios. Uh, I think probably a lot more so than when I was trying to get a job here. I think there's many more avenues in than there used to be. Right. So uh, another question that I, I had to ask you is, do actors actually embrace uh, embrace visual effects or it's something that they see as a burden if you have to do like motion capture for example on, on a case like avengers where you had to bring michael ruffalo to dress up in a suit and yeah. act as a yeah. hawk is it something they enjoy or i would say it depends on the on the actor and how they feel about it um you know i I, I actually can understand how sometimes for the actors it's got to feel pretty laborious um, working with visual effects because, you know, you're out there and it's like, yeah, Kong's over here. And, you know, I had a lot of questions about, um, well, you know, how did the actors do their performances? How, what were they, what were they looking at? And it's like, it's just acting, you know, I mean, they're, they've, they've got nothing and they're just, you know, doing it all in their minds and, and coming up with these performances. And, and I'm always amazed at what actors can do. Um, I think that, uh, they, that most actors, well, you know, while some of it is tedious, especially, you know, we always have to do all the scanning and the photographs and all that, that, um, the, every actor that I've worked with has been really great. I mean, for Hulk, Mark Ruffalo was so excited to work with us. He was the only Avenger that was on set in gray pajamas and dots on his face, and he just had the best attitude about it. He brought so much to the character. Um, and just, you know, the nicest person in the world to work with. And very excited to learn kind of how we did our thing. Because I think for a lot of actors, it's got to just seem like this mystery black box world, you know, because they'll finish the film a year before we're done, uh, oftentimes. Um, so they, they finish and then they just kind of disappear and then, oh, here it comes out in, in the theaters and, and um, you know, everything's put together. Um, but I will say also that I think there's, it's, it's kind of on visual effects to really help build a bridge with actors. Um, and, and a great example, I think, is what, like on Warcraft, um, we had, you know, several of the actors playing the orcs and we said, okay, we need we need you to, you know, you're going to be on set. Travis Fimmel's going to look like this awesome knight uh, in all his, his armor, and you're going to be in great pajamas with a with a dual camera helmet and lights, you know, shining in your eyes. And that is a tough situation to say now, like, okay, now I'm going to give you performance like an orc. And I think it could be easy to just sort of 
blow it off or, or dismiss it. And also to, to feel like, oh, I did this performance and then that's not what I saw on the screen at all. So our goal with that film was really to say um, to the director, because of the scale of the film and the number of performances we had to do, we, we don't have time to keyframe all of this. Um, it's we, we really need to uh, get it with the actors. So you, you on set, spend as much time as you need to iterate with the actors, get exactly the performance you want to see on these orcs, and we will make sure that that translates faithfully um, to the actors. And one of the things that we did on that film was we did a little test shoot um, before we started principal photography with two of the actors. And um, we, you know, at that time we were really building our facial pipeline um, and the, the whole solving. Um, uh, but uh, we had a, something very cool in, in the facial pipeline because we use a very high dot count. Um, we can get an incredible amount of fidelity out of the performance, um, and particularly, I think, with the the mouth and the and the eyes, which is you know where a lot of this the CG characters tend to fall apart because they sort of look dead in the eyes. Um, so we we were pushing hard on getting those shots through the pipeline, and then we rendered it um, initially with on an orc. Uh, and this was uh, Orgrim with uh, Rob Kaczynski rendered on an orc with just gray skin um, and it had like nice texture to it but it was not didn't look like real skin at all but we made the eyes look real uh, and when you saw a combination of the movement and and then you know we sort of had the little picture in picture of what the actor did and then what it looked like translated onto an orc and when rob could see how faithfully the performance was replicated onto the orc i think they got very excited right. because they didn't feel like you know what we're just out here wasting our time you guys are just going to keyframe this or throw it all in the garbage when you get back it, it was like no no what you do is what's going on the character and here's how well it's going to translate and i think that let some of the actors like um toby kebble just did this you know the opening scene of the film is he and his and his wife draka sitting in a tent and the first shot is just a close-up of his face and he's just you know sort of looking at her and uh toby did that performance for us you know it was on a mocap stage you know with a helmet and the pajamas and everything but the detail in his uh, what his eyes did was phenomenal. And even though his face doesn't do a whole lot, there's just enough of those little subtle things that you you feel like there's a soul in the character. Uh, and so he got when we showed him that he was very excited. And and when the when the re movie came out and you know the review said, oh, this character played by Toby Kebble, I think that was really a, a testament to how well the technology was working at that point in terms of translating the actor's performance. Right, yeah, I can imagine it's an intense process, especially if actors who are used to performing with other people and there's nobody to perform with. Yeah. It's hard. Um, so let's just finish off with what, if like for this very um, challenging and busy position that you have, what are the things that you have to sacrifice to actually get everything done? That is a great question. I mean, it is. It is. It can be very long hours, um, particularly when you're working as a visual effects supervisor and you're going on location. Um, you know, you're with them um, while they scout the locations. So that can often be years before the the movie um, is actually shot. 
uh, you're on location every day shooting the film. Then you come back and you're working in post production. And you know, usually the start of post production is not bad, but very quickly it can get very busy. And then you get into towards the end a lot of weekends to get the work done. Um, so it's it's a lot of hours, and it's not just for the supervisors. It's for all the artists and production teams and support staff that that work on these. So um, I think. You know, there's definitely sacrifices that people make there with their time um, because they care so much about the work. And, you know, particularly trying to balance having a family and, you know, making sure they still know who you are when you're done with a project <laughs> uh, is, is difficult. It's really difficult. But it's, it's so important because I think the best artists, you know, have a life outside of of the visual effects work and, um, you know, get refreshed, you know, when they need to. And, um, I think that that is an important balance to, to try and achieve as best you can, uh, in this industry, because it will take up as much time as you want to give it, you know, CG work is incredibly complicated. And, you know, when you, when people see it, they tend to see the finished result and they don't see all the little painful steps and things that went wrong and renders that broke, you know, and, and, and Sims that blew up, you know, they don't, they don't see all the things that, that happened along the way to get it to, to finish state. And, you know, when it, when it's in the film, it goes by like that, yeah, sure. but when when you're working on it, it's like oh, look in the upper right hand corner. We got a mat that's moving. You know, there's just a lot of a lot of pieces that go into it. So, I um I think that finding that balance is difficult, but it's important. It, it really is because I think you people do much better work when when they have a life outside of visual effects as well. Sure, um, working in in the visual effects just um, turned me into an uh, in into an insomnia that like, yeah. I just can't sleep early enough. It's just like always two, usually two or three or something like that. Uh, yeah, I, I have bad news for you because you hit a certain age where that doesn't work so well anymore. <laughs> I hope so. Right. But then how do you get the balance though on your side? And what do you like to do out, outside of the CG stuff? Well, I, I always say the irony is, you know, for so many years I worked in the industry and I just wanted to go on set and then you have kids and then that's like the last thing you want to do because you just want to be with them. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it is, it's really sort of, you know, all about the kids, any free time that I get, you know, it's, it's, um, that's, I think that's a, a really important thing for me and making sure that it feels balanced and uh, trying to explain to them that no Kong is really friendly gorilla and nobody hurts him because they're very concerned about King Kong because <laughs> they're six. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, no, that's, that's what I love doing. And, and the nice thing is like you finish a project and maybe then it's like a little bit slow while the next project starts to ramp up. And, you know, that's the great time to try and volunteer in their school and, and, you know, just make sure that you're, you're trying to find that balance. Uh, and giving them that time because as you said um, you can once you start this work it's you can do it all the time yeah um, and how does it feel like when the movie is out and like you tell them that you worked on it if like they're looking at the posters or around, around the place on the TV like I worked yeah. on that 
Yeah, they're amazingly uninterested. I think <laughs> maybe <laughs> that's, that's a good that's thing another, for now. <laughs> yeah, that's another one of life's ironies is that uh, you know almost everybody you talk to in the industry would say that your your children keep you humble, and uh, they're you know I think about like oh my gosh if my dad was in visual effects and yeah, did these yeah. movies it'd be amazing but they're like oh, okay actually I think my I have a older stepkids and they were most impressed by the fact that I did a Reddit AMA. You know more so than right. completing oh. a movie. <laughs> wow! So you know it's good. You you do it, all of that keeps you grounded and and balanced, and um, I think that's very important. Right. Um, and one th- lastly, one thing that I um, I keep on seeing right now, just because visual effects is becoming more relevant, it seems like in the near future the visual effects side of things like supervisors will be highly involved in promoting the film when it's out much more than they do right now do you think that's actually going to happen uh i think it happens more and more i mean we we end up doing a lot of interviews and press and things like that because um you know these films are such a big part of them is visual effects i mean kong is as big a character as any in the movie and people always love to hear a little bit about how it was done or what some of the challenges were um so i think it's great that um there are all these avenues now for the supervisors in the industry to be able to sort of talk about the work that they're doing and um especially because you know it's you know when i was learning about the industry there was so little information about how the work was done and now I think you have access to a lot more channels um, in terms of um, hearing about that which for people that are interested in visual effects work and computer graphics um, it's great it's great to have them and then how do you think of the there's a, a huge talk right now with online becoming more relevant where people who want to get into visual effects or other related digital industries is it like should they go to university or should they do it on their own uh, and the course involved and all that kind of stuff is like what do you yeah. think about the whole system I, I i really feel like each person has to sort of decide that for themselves and and that is the, because for me um i'm one of those people that's like oh that looks interesting oh that looks interesting and going to school um said you know here's your project for this semester and that gave me focus and that was good and also you know at when i was at school i learned as much from the other students as as anybody because they're all you know deeply into maya and they know these like super ninja tricks that you can get you know to pull something off so um i i i think there's a lot of value in that school environment um for the focus that it provides and for um the relationships that you build um out of that uh, that said, it's not a requirement. I mean, there is so much um, online, uh, and and the the barrier to the to entry is so much lower than it used to be. I think um, you know I I follow a lot of what happens in the Blender community, and I think it's incredibly exciting because you don't you don't need more to to just start sort of pursuing your passions and expressing your creativity. 
Um, and, you know, even though it, it is a technical uh, package to work with, there's so much community and so much support uh, on YouTube and uh, tutorials and all this stuff. I mean, if you're, if you're interested in visual effects work, you can absolutely just sit down and start learning it on your own, which I think is great. It's really empowering for people that um, maybe aren't, aren't sure, you know, what part of it that they're most interested in or just want to learn a little bit about it. Um, all of that's available now and, you know, for free, that's pretty amazing. Uh, and very lastly, is uh, what are do you have any routines that helps you to like stay focused and keep kind of simplify your your day or your week or your schedule in a way? Yeah, I should. That's that's probably my, the worst thing. I'm that's the thing I'm the worst at. Um, <laughs> luckily, you know, uh, on a on a show like this, um, where you know our our day is um, or like my day is like coming in the morning and I'm reviewing work that came in from Singapore then we go into dailies and we're talking with Vancouver and San Francisco and Montreal then we're preparing for a review with the client sending them all the the shots to look at then you know we'll be on the phone for several hours with them then we'll do a nightlies with the artist to see what what progress they made during the day then we'll call Singapore and then and then the day's over so luckily the day it's kind of scheduled for me, <laughs> which is good because I'm not a great time management person at all. Just ask my wife. <laughs> right. But then if you want to shift it up like for family related uh, projects yeah. or things, I think, how do you... I, think, I think you just have to schedule it, you know, and I think um, the, you, you know, there's, let's say there's a school event, you know, on Friday night. Uh, you know, hopefully you're on a project where you can say like, hey, I really, I need to be out for this. And I was very lucky on Skull Island. I had a, another supervisor I was working with, Robert Weaver. And so he and I could go back and forth and, you know, help cover each other if we had to get out and do an event or something like that. Um, but it, it is important to make time for those things. And then to know that, okay, when you're in the last three months of a show, it's just going to be your life 24-7. And it's a big push, and then it's done. And then, you know, a lot of times you have a little bit of time before the next one starts to yeah. to, to balance it um, with time outside of work. And that's that's definitely how it is in any sort of project-based creative industry. Great. Uh, thanks so much, Dave. I really appreciate oh, sure. your time, man. Uh, it's been an oh, hour yeah, absolutely. of talking. Uh, I was looking forward to this. Yeah, no, it's great talking to you and a really great podcast. Thank you, um, thank you for doing it. Yes, man. Uh, hopefully see you in another AMA sometime soon. Yeah, yeah hopefully. <laughs> another two years or so, I'll have another movie in the theater. <laughs> yeah, sure. But did you manage to answer all the questions there? I did. I I got through a bunch, and then I had to go, unfortunately, because there were so many good questions. You know, I yeah. could have, and I actually really love the humorous ones more than the serious ones. <laughs> one of my favorite. Uh, one of my favorites was um, who is who is who is more handsome, Tom Hiddleston, and I think it was Josh or some other guy. <laughs> and your answer oh. was Kong. <laughs> that was funny. I'm biased. You know, it's not fair. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Okay, cheers, man. Um, All right, thank you. Today. You too. Great talking to you. Yeah.